0: that a trillion (laughs) single-use disposables are thrown out in the US each year. And that became a real opportunity because it doesn't have to be that way. We think that reuse, whether it is a ceramic plate or a reusable plastic container that is washed over and over is a much better solution
1: Welcome to another episode of the Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee, and I'm working to share the lessons and philosophies from leaders working in climate so you can live a sustainable life that brings the world closer to net zero emissions. One trillion single-use plastics and five gallons of water per dish. That is the current environmental footprint Linda Pulio is trying to erase as she moves the world closer to net zero emissions. Linda is the co-founder and CEO of Dishcraft Robotics. Dishcraft takes care of the dishes so kitchens can take care of the people. Dishcraft is the only reusable foodware delivery solution that combines robotic automation, process innovation, and service to solve the environmental and labor challenges facing the food service industry today. Similar to a linen service, Dishcraft delivers and picks up a full range of reusable foodware items and washes them using advanced patented technology that scrubs and inspects dishes multiple times, using cold, recirculated water. The result is a highly efficient, scalable system that conserves resources and delivers a consistent, unparalleled level of clean. Linda is a serial entrepreneur, an angel investor, an artist, and a foodie who is passionate about robotics and hardware. Colleagues describe her as the glue that sticks everything together inside a company. During the interview, Linda and I discussed her entrepreneurial journey, how she integrates her passion and backgrounds for art in her role as CEO, and how Dishcraft is moving the world closer to net zero emissions while reducing the amount of single-use plastics and wasted water currently plaguing the food industry. Before we jump into the episode, a quick message from Climate People, our favorite climate-focused recruiting agency. Climate People is an incredible recruiting agency working to connect mission-driven talent with companies fighting climate change. Whether you're a candidate looking to build software that helps sequester carbon or a founder looking to hire engineers, Climate People can take care of your talent acquisition needs so you can focus on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions. Climate People is also looking to hire recruiters so they can place even more talented people in roles that help move the world closer to net zero emissions. If you or someone you know is interested in recruiting for the top climate-focused recruiting agency, get in touch with Climate People founder Brendan Anderson via email brendan at climatepeople.com. Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Linda Puglio, CEO and co-founder of Dishcraft Robotics. Linda, thanks for joining the show today. Thanks for having me. I thought that we could begin by talking about your career arc. From what I've been able to tell, it's been quite a journey. And so I'm wondering if you could s- give us a bit where you started and then where you are today and some fun jobs in between.
0: I started thinking I was going to be an artist, specifically fine arts and painting. And so I went to university for that. And then I got a job after school in operations and doing producing uh work for museums. And so we were developing products, anything from the design all the way through production for all the museums actually in the US, plus many in Europe. And from that, I really grew to love how to make things. And so in right after 9-11, I decided I really wanted to start my own company. And the first thing I did was I went to the owners of the place I was working and I said, hey, can I, can I be a partner here? And because I wanted to be part of a startup and they were like, look, we love your work, but no. <laughs> so I moved to California because I figured what better place to be than around other entrepreneurs. And I started Neato Robotics because I had a neighbor who had done a hardware company before and decided he was going to go into robots. And I said, look, I don't know anything about hardware, but I know how to get things made because my previous experience designing and getting things Built in China. So we started Needo Robotics together. And from there, I've been a hardware entrepreneur ever since.
1: Was it hard to go to your like first company and say, hey, I want to be a partner? How long had you worked there before you did that?
0: Three years. I it was, yeah, it was really hard because it's I knew I was delivering. I knew I was a great employee. And so I had a great case for why I should be a partner. But uh, they, you know, they'd been around for 15 years before me. So, <laughs> so that didn't go well, but I thought of it as, a, as far as it was, it ended up being an opportunity because when you hear a no, you can turn that into a yes of like, I still had the goal of owning something. So it was what prompted me to move to California.
1: When did, did you leave right after they said no, or were there some time between them saying no and then you moving to California?
0: I started a small startup. Uh, it was, let's see, two, 2003. I started a small startup in New York and it never found product market fit. Um, but I worked on it for about six months and then I, and then I moved here.
1: I mean, clearly at least it's coming through that you've always had a desire to start your own company. Is that the case or did something kind of like trigger that?
0: I just like making things. I like building things. I, in fact, like going back to my art roots, I think that creating a business is very much like creating a painting because you're trying to balance all these different elements and to get the perfect end result. So I think I was always making things and wanting to make things on my own and with people.
1: Can you tell me more about that framework? I, you know, I've never made art, uh, at least not since like second grade. What? How often do you come back to that framework of like your business and art? And like, what is the arc of a, like a paintwork?
0: I love to do creative things uh, every week. And when you build something on your own, whether it's a painting or Glass blowing or mosaic, whatever it is, you know, you have a structure and you need to fit together a whole bunch of different elements like shape, color, size in order to have a very balanced piece. And that's the same way that I look at you know, building a product or building a company because you have all these different elements and you need them to work and play really nicely together. Um, And you're always shifting things. And often with art, you do the same theme over and over until you get like a really great work that you're satisfied with. Similarly with a company, when you're building a product, you know, it's rare that out the gate the first time it works. And so you're always iterating. And so I find them very similar.
1: So cool. And so now you're, you know, CEO and founder of Dishcraft and you've been around for as far as I can tell around six years. And so kind of in the line of what you're talking about, how long, how much has the product at Dishcraft iterated um, between 2015 and today? And what has that journey been like?
0: All the theories that we had when we first started the company have remained the same and the vision for the company of providing great service and dishwashing results powered by robots is exactly the same. The business model itself changed when we first started the company, we thought that we could build equipment and install it on site at a restaurant or a cafeteria for our customers. What we found was that it in fact is, we can do a better job by delivering it as a service Much like ghost kitchens or commissary kitchens that all the efficiencies you see by doing mass production in a centralized dishwashing hub was a better fit and less friction for the client. So that was the major change of how we actually implement the service, but everything else, the equipment is the same.
1: Going back to the beginning of the dishcraft journey, I, um, I heard a rumor that you worked as a dishwasher beforehand at, at multiple restaurants. And I also heard that you may or may not have been rejected from a, a restaurant supply chain. Yes.
0: So I think the best way to learn and to understand your customers is to do the job yourself. And if you're trying to solve a problem, you have to know exactly what is being done today in order to improve upon it. And so I worked in a pub and I worked in a casino and I worked in a school and I worked in a corporate cafeteria and the problems were the same wherever I was. And the method of doing things was relatively the same. I did apply to a major chain restaurant. And I will say that's another problem that someone should solve because it's it's a broken system. I mean, off, it was very hard to get in and, had multiple hours of like application, which if you consider the workforce that's trying and applying for that job, it's not suited to be doing it online in the language they were asking us to do it and in that long term. And when you talk to the managers of restaurants themselves, they're very frustrated because they say, look, what what is required from us is we want someone to show up with two hands and ready to work, but it takes three weeks to get through the process. (laughs) So... And, it's a good intro into the industry.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, going again, going back to the beginning of Dishcraft, what were the foundational values that you used to start at, you know, the next Your life is a sustainability focused podcast. And I know you've done a bunch of sustainability podcasts, but also some entrepreneurship ones. So in terms of like when you're creating this idea and in the, the time since, how are the values, how have you balanced the values? And also kind of like, what were the C's from sustainability, entrepreneurship, profit, all that other stuff?
0: When we started Dishcraft, what was really important to me was to build a great culture and to prove that you could be, have a great place to work as well as highly profitable. We always had sustainability in mind in terms of methodology, but it wasn't actually called out at the front door as a value. That subsequently changed because as we got into the industry, we really learned what an impact we could have on emissions and water and the industry as a whole. So we said, this is important enough that this should be a core value of Dishcraft. But when I started, I wanted to solve in many ways what I considered lacking in my previous startup. So when I had done my first startup, people, it was highly successful, but I wouldn't say it was the greatest culture. And so I had a real drive to say, let's do it over again and be even better this time. And so we really have values about communication and respect and collaboration, which I think we're across the board. People say Dishcraft is a great place to work.
1: And you mentioned like something changed. What changed when you're talking about like the the sustainability kind of value, what changed where you recognize, were you able to recognize the fact that like both water and emissions, you can reduce the impact through Discraft's work?
0: When we started the company, I was trying to solve for I was it was a call from the restaurant industry because they were really struggling to get the job done consistently and they couldn't find people to do it. And so we were really trying to solve some labor issues. But when you're doing the role yourself and you're observing the amount of water that is actually being used, it's astounding. I mean, a a person washing will often use up to five gallons of water, just washed, scrubbing a single cover. Uh, cover in the restaurant industry is, is the meal. It's like the plate, the glass, the flatware. And if you recirculate that water, it's just teaspoons. So that was, we knew that within the first month that that was something that we wanted to solve. You also start to see how many chemicals that you could also save along the way too. From there, I started to do research and the team started to do research. And what we found is single use disposables. There are, in the last year, there was a report made by Upstream called Reuse Wins that a trillion (laughs) single use disposables are thrown out in the US each year. And that became a real opportunity because it doesn't have to be that way. We think that reuse, whether it is a ceramic plate or a reusable plastic container that is washed over and over, is a much better solution. It will use far less carbon emissions. It will use far less water. I mean, actually, an astounding step that I only just read is that the make, the manufacturing of a compostable plate is uses 25 times the amount of water as a single-use as a reuse container, a small plastic, lightweight container. And so right there, that's an opportunity on water, but as well on the manufacturing of greenhouse gas emissions for compostables is astoundingly high. I mean, when you take in that number of a trillion single-use disposables, which mostly land up in landfill, if all those were going over to reuse instead, it would be the equivalent of 7.6 million passenger cars being driven in a year of saving of carbon emissions.
1: It's so interesting because, you know, throughout this podcast, I'm starting to build the framework of, at least my framework of like what sustainability is. Sustainability, when I started for me, is just like, you know, it's a buzzword um, and it means so many different things. I kind of think there's like a few pillars one of the pillars is carbon right it's like tailpipe emissions but another pillar is water and land use and biodiversity and zero waste is something that i'm seeing first of all it feels like it's like super appealing to gen z and younger and so for me when i'm you know learning about this craft i jump to water and zero waste but it's fascinating to hear kind of the 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 carbon emission piece and the, the passengers off the road. I will say, I remember doing a life cycle analysis in my master's degree about a ceramic, uh, ceramic mug for like a cup of coffee. And I remember I, and, and maybe like, it depends on like what they were analyzing, but it was something along the lines of like, if you use the ceramic mug 250 times, then you've like, then you're, then you're kind of in the black and every time you use after that. So, but you know, that doesn't necessarily include water for you. You mentioned recirculated water and, and kind of like the landfill process as well. Could you share a little bit kind of like the first principles of recirculating water and avoiding things moving into landfill? Just like maybe some time from when you were in, when you were dishwashing yourself, like what that picture looked like, where all the water went and, um, and then seeing maybe like the amount of trash that would go from the restaurant into the landfill.
0: Yeah. When you're doing the role yourself, you're doing a process where you, sort the wares, and then you're pre-rinsing and scrubbing every single one. And then you rack it, you put it into a, what's called a dish machine or a sanitizer, and then it comes out the other side. And all of that is being using potable water, because, you know, there's always a, if you're doing it at a sink, then someone might also use that same sink to fill a glass of water and need to drink it. And so you can't use reuse of water at that station. What Dishcraft does is because everything is running through a robot that is enclosed, we can recirculate that water because it's very safe and we filter it. And that is the equivalent of using teaspoons instead of gallons. So that was one major innovation. Then, you know, the other place where, as I mentioned, we save a lot of water is in land, like most compostables land up in landfill and they, just in the manufacturing of it, it's just using a tremendous amount of water. And since we're using reuse within, let's see, we use a fraction, it's about 4% of the highest footprint containers that if you switch over to dishcraft. So it's it's a, just an obvious win for the for society.
1: <laughs> yeah, totally. And so when you're going to customers, either your previous customers or future customers, how much of the pitch is we are going to save you money Versus we are going to like make the world more sustainable.
0: We like to say that we are safe and sustainable. So because we do things through robotics and end to end, we can handle the wares with contactlessly or touchless, you know, where no human hand touches that plate until the chef gets it. That's very important in terms of safety because that's, no one else can do that today with the exception of dishcraft. We, also, talk about sustainability, because when you have a corporation, most of our, our customers are corporate or hospitality partners. They Their employees are saying to them, look, we hate throwing away paper goods, and there must be a better way, and can you switch? And so there's an obvious champion in the sustainability department, as well as the employees. We had one customer who said this was the biggest impact we had by taking on Dishcraft to our overall you know, waste. It, we have heard astounding numbers of um, of the waste that is is produced by corporate cafeterias.
1: You mentioned sustainability champions and you know, we're, we're seeing them pop up all over the world, but it's amazing how like one person's desire to have an impact can like infiltrate a corporation. I'm curious, both like in your customers and within Dishcraft itself, what does a sustainability champion look like? What are they saying? What are they doing? And and how are they making an impact?
0: Often something like the office managers hearing from their employees themselves that they really want to be more sustainable. So they will put together a plan that doesn't necessarily only include food services, but the majority of the waste actually, in fact, when they start doing their research comes from the food service area. So they will come to us and they're just like, look, you know, we need a better solution. We didn't even know that something like this existed prior, so we're always a, a welcome change for them. But they're they're always trying to do different things. They will often tell us that they're switching out the hand dryers, you know, towels for hand dryers uh, to reduce the amount of water being used there. They will switch to pre-COVID. I would say people were switching over to uh, multi-bin snack containers versus individual single-use snack containers. I don't know um, if that is going to remain, because people are very sensitive to touching right now um, or contamination of single-use touch. So, there's there's a whole variety of things they they will outline as a plan. And in fact, Dishcraft has been working with some of them to give them other ideas because we collect, we have the benefit of being able to collect information from a variety of sources that one single corporation might not know or one single hotel. We also work with hotels might not know.
1: And so, you know, during COVID, the things that got hit the most, as far as as far as I know, right? Hospitality and restaurants and those are your, like your primary customers. How did Dishcraft manage to survive that?
0: It was really tough. I would say the first week that it happened, uh, you know, like overnight, all our customers paused us and we weren't sure how long the pandemic was gonna last. And that has a very significant impact on obviously your revenue. We we said, let's kick COVID's butt. <laughs> it sounds as simple as that. We said, Let, let's ta- turn this Um, and come out of it stronger. So we developed new technology. Prior to the pandemic, we were only handling ceramics. And we said, look, it's clear that the world is going to use a lot more single-use containers, and so let's create an automated solution for that, which we subsequently did. And we also went fully touchless because prior to the pandemic, we only had technology that was... um, doing everything up until this, what's called the sanitizer. so it was two thirds of the task. And since the pandemic, we developed new technology that could take things out of the sanitizer with robotics, inspect it for cleanliness, and then um, put it into carts or use for service.
1: For someone who's not familiar with dishwashing, or or at least just washing out of like a kind of automated robotic uh, robotic way, can you paint the picture of like what it looks like where a dish kind of just starts as dirty and comes out clean?
0: Yes, so in fact, dishwashing is made up of like, you know, a string of small tasks. And what we have done is develop separate robotics that to handle each one of those. And so it's almost like a manufacturing line. So the first task is when dirty dishes come in from the dining room, they need to get sorted. They need to be sorted into plates, bowls, forks, glassware. And we created a very nice system called a drop where you uh, you can easily scrape and sort all the food in a nice, tidy way. So what we're really doing with the drop is dishes are being placed into carts. We then take those carts full of a stack of dishes, dirty dishes, and insert it into what we call the pre-rinse robot. And that's where, if you think of a a person who's standing in front of a sink, much like you do at home, you know, you're you're taking a sponge and you're scrubbing and getting all bits of refuse off. And then you take it from there and you would, at home, you would put it into your dishwasher for sanitization. So our pre-rinse robot takes every single wear, scrubs it, Make sure it's immaculately clean, inspects it 22 times uh, for cleanliness, and then puts it through that sanitizer for the, uh, to re- remove any particles. Then from there, it's just taken out of, what you do is you take it out of your dishwasher at home and put it back into a shelf. So similarly in a restaurant, you would just take it out of the sanitizer, you put it into a cart to put back into service.
1: You know, which kind of leads me into my next question, which of course we were going to get into, which is like, what lessons can dish, can I learn from dishcraft in terms of like one, how do I like make sure my dishes are clean all the time? Because if if you have a dishwasher that like, make sure it's clean after it's dirty, I would love to know because mine definitely doesn't work. So I, I hand wash my dishes and I also love like particularly clean dishes, but then just in terms of like tips and tricks for like how to reduce my water, um, like along the process would be great.
0: Dishcraft has, you know, look sophisticated technology that can do the inspection. And so, what we can do is the first really I would call it smart dishwasher, where it has vision to say, you know, is this plate clean or not, and then give it a go or no, you need to rerun it. Um, the we have also trained <laughs> dishwashers people to do the same exact thing. It's just hard for them to do that consistently all day long. Um, So that's the advantage when you're at home, just looking and doing a spot check is pretty sufficient when you're at home. It's just, you're, you're washing maybe a dozen dishes. You're not washing thousands. And so that's really why we created this commercial grade piece. And then in terms of saving things, it's, you really don't need that many chemicals. I think people tend to overuse soap, but in fact, it's the scrubbing action that is cleaning the plate. And so I think that would save a lot. And you can certainly do soaking, which would save a lot on water. If you fill up your sink and you don't keep the water running the entire time while you're watching each plate, and you're simply like creating almost a bath that you are reusing that same water to do, you know, all the dinner nights dishes, that is definitely going to save a lot. And then also when you do use the dishwasher to have it full, uh, often you find that people will put in a few dishes and run it but you know, really like it would be much better for the environment if you completely fill it before you're doing a run.
1: Is it better to hand wash the equivalent of a full dishwasher load or to put it in the dishwasher?
0: Such a great question. There are two different functions though. The dishwasher is sanitizing it. It's bringing every item up to a certain temperature to make sure that all bacteria is killed. Um and in fact with the, the dishwashers do a pretty good job of cleaning as well so you could have dirt particles on it uh, dishcraft because we do such high volume needs to separate those two functions so in fact you could probably do a better job if you just simply loaded up your dishwasher and ran it that way versus hand washing you'd, you do you if it was a fully loaded dishwasher you'd probably use less water that way
1: is dishcraft international
0: No, today we're, we're in the U S we started in the Bay area and we're super excited because we're making our, our first plans for deployment outside of the Bay area.
1: Yeah. Where to next?
0: Oh, we have two other major cities that we're going into, but I, I can't name them yet.
1: Okay. I won't, I won't push. I ask because I think back to like, you know, being, being a backpacker and, um, what jumps out to me is in New Zealand. They're like the whole tub washing was a thing. Like. You filled up the tub, you put the dishes in, but I'm just not seeing that in the U S. And so I was curious if there's like kind of cultural differences that you even maybe within cities or homes versus restaurants versus hotels in terms of like, as a home, like I just want that clean water all the time in my dishes because it makes me feel good versus like maybe in a commercial kitchen, they understand that like, Hey, like gray water does, you mentioned that scrubbing is like the cleaning part of it. So have you, is there that cultural difference in the different pieces of the puzzle?
0: I was surprised when I started to look at different verticals for dishcraft, and I really have only observed in the U.S. I have very little experience within dishrooms in Asia or Europe. I mean, I've watched some videos. The process is pretty much the same. The technology that is currently used in dishrooms has been around since 1950, and it's been replicated The same vendors that are selling equipment here are the same ones selling it in Europe and Asia. So I think it's mostly the same. The one thing that's slightly different in Asia, which is pretty great, is they have started to create centralized dishwashing hubs. Uh, I've seen them videos of them in Hong Kong and Singapore. And I think that's a great model that I would like to see the U.S. adopt more.
1: Yeah, which is kind of another aspect of sustainability that I wanted to get to, which is, um, you know, companies that offer delivery services will argue that like removing the car off the road is better for the environment. Like, you know, one van can do 100 trips in the neighborhood. Right. And it's taking off 100 individual trips. Same thing with dishwashing. Like, is that is it better if all of the dishwash all the dishes are are owned and cleaned by dishcraft and then the restaurants like don't have anything inside themselves?
0: We definitely are saving on water by doing it in a centralized fashion because of the method that we do it. There's no question there. Um, There's a whole bunch of other benefits by doing centralized dishwashing that are not, uh, centralized dishwashing by robotics um, that aren't actually sustainably minded, but they're much safer. So the dishroom is the slipperiest place and it is the cause of most workplace accidents in food services. And then when someone does get hurt there, it often takes them 30 days to come back. And so that creates a problem, like it creates a morale problem. There's overtime, there's, you know, a whole host of of issues. So we really were trying to tackle two different things, making it just much better and a joy to have. Like, it's that feeling at the end of a meal when, you know, your guest says, hey, let me help you with the dishes. Let's take care of this for you. And that was really the inspiration for Dishcraft of like, hey, let's just take all this headache off your plate and deliver it to you so that you don't have to worry about buying dishes. You don't have to worry about the breakage. You don't have to worry about the uh, reordering chemicals or or what your water bill is going to look like or, you know, your equipment went down for the night and what are you going to do? So... There's so many benefits to centralization beyond the sustainability impact.
1: Linda and I continue the discussion after the break, where we discuss her personal sustainability framework and the one thing she would change about the world if she could. Are you a leader in climate who's working on bringing the world closer to net zero emissions? We would love to hear from you. Get in touch with me and the Net Zero Life team via all of our social medias by following at the Net Zero Life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the Net Zero Life works great too. I want to turn it over to you for a little bit, if that's okay. Um, One, you have a dog. What kind of dog do you have?
0: I have three King Charles Cavaliers.
1: Oh, how old are they?
0: So there's two that are 10 and they were litter maids. And then we got the COVID puppy. And so now he's a year old
1: very fun. I'm curious, like your, I call it like carbon consciousness or like, what was the nugget that inspired you to think about sustainability? Um, was it like a book, a customer, some other sort of experience that kind of, for you turned on your like sustainability mindfulness?
0: There were two things at dishcraft. We were looking at ways just to be good citizens of how could we do a better job ourselves? And we started to notice just paper napkins, you know, People use paper napkins instead of reusable, uh, often, particularly in office environments. And we are like, then we started to look at where are other ways that we could save ourselves. And then we started to naturally think towards Dishcraft. But the other thing is I did this exercise for the company of what is the world like uh, in 10 years with Dishcraft and what is the world without Dishcraft? And we asked every employee to draw it. And... I was so surprised because the results of it, half the employees really drew pictures that had to do with sustainability. And that was the first eye-opening you know, moment where we're like, Wait, wow, this is really important to the company as
1: a whole. And then for you, has that inspired like a personal journey as well?
0: Yeah, because you wanna live the work that you're asking your employees to do. And so you, I started to look at home things that I was doing. So I'll give you an example. If you drink some water and you only have half a glass and there's still half a glass of water left, you know, all of a sudden you're like, Hey, instead of dumping that down the drain, I could use that to water my plants. So there's all these little tiny things and habits that you can take on yourself to make the world better.
1: Yeah. Which is you know perfect because I'm curious, you know, since starting a company that has like a huge environmental impact, have you changed anything within your own life?
0: There's a lot I do now. I was not the best at composting, I would say, before. And since then, I created this uh, gardening hobby, I would say, or passion where plants keep coming. (laughs) But then it's, it's, it's fun. There's just so many, there's a better life and a cleaner life that we can live.
1: Is there any part that's hard to be the face of a, you know, environmental company, but yet there's something that you do maybe in your personal life where you feel like I I want to change this, but I'm not ready to, from like a climate perspective. That's a great question.
0: We, at Dishcraft, we, it was fairly easy. Actually we made, we had a mission to switch to hundred percent renewable energy and you know, we had to do some research. There's, we would like to there's things that aren't available to us yet on the logistics side you know trucking hasn't made as far as advances as say personal cars in terms of um we use hybrid um but i would like to use you know 100 percent electric if we can to move things there's as a public face i mean i think it's more that there's a lot of pressure on a ceo everyone's looking at every single thing you do i mean Ridiculous things that come up, like you know, what clothes I wear are <laughs> commented on. Like you're a public face. Like, like you know, do I need to wear 100% bamboo clothing every day? It, it, people question every single thing you do because you're in front of everyone. Um, I have not gone that far. I, mean, I really love my Italian, you know, sewn sweaters, and that's what I wear.
1: <laughs> I hope this is fair game. Let me know if it's not. But uh, do you think that? if you were a man, that the same questions would come up?
0: No, I I do think that there is still, unfortunately, today, um, standards. In fact, I was watching with the Olympics. There's the, I don't know if you've been following, but the volleyball teams, you know, they ask the women by regulation are supposed to wear these bikinis. And they're saying, why can't we wear shorts? The men get to wear shorts. And, you know, they're actually fined. Because one of the teams decided to wear shorts.
1: <laughs> Unreal. Yeah. You know, obviously, I don't X and a Y over here. So, yeah, I, I don't know what it's like to be on their side, but it is fascinating uh, and unfortunate to say the least. You mentioned the trucking. I also heard in another podcast that your trucks run on biodiesel. Is that still the case? Yes. So do you have to pay a premium for that? Is that something that you as company has made a decision to say, we are willing to spend this money or is it like the most economical thing to do as well?
0: Oh no, we pay more, uh, but we think it's the right thing to do. There's, I learned a lot actually. There's a friend of mine who's the CEO of Grove, uh, the cleaning, uh, they sell products like a subscription consumer product. And he is a uh, B Corp and taught me a lot about sustainability and, and things that he did. And he made it a corporate I was inspired by him because he, made it. he said to the whole board, look, we're going to do certain things that will reduce our profits slightly, but we think overall it's much better as a company. And so we just adopted all the same methodologies to say, "Like, look, this is, this is clearly what we still are going to make a lot of profits, and it's just the better thing to do to be good citizens.
1: Yeah. So what is that framework? Like, I imagine like there's some sort of premium that you're not willing to pay, like if it's like 10,000% more expensive, right?
0: It's a, it's a few pennies more. It's not, it's not going to really impact the bottom line.
1: Got it. Um, going back to you again, he, there, have you read the book, The Wizard and the Prophet?
0: No, but that sounds like a great title.
1: It's so good, uh, and it's it's going to be a theme throughout the episode, throughout this, throughout season two. Um, But it's a short history of the environmental movement. Uh, it's by Charles C. Mann, and he creates two characters which uh, are emblematic of two schools of thought in the environmental movement. The wizard is the innovator. They they don't view Earth as like a fixed carrying capacity, in that like. We can continue to expand humanity, we can continue to grow GDP, all this other good stuff, and yet we can reduce our footprint. Uh, We can decouple growth from carbon. The profit, on the other hand, says like, no, that's not the case, right? We have have a fixed carrying capacity. We are making an impact. We need to change our ways. So like, you know, in short profit says we need to stop the, what we're doing and do it differently. The wizard says it's okay. We're going to like innovate our way out of it. I think I know where you fall. But if you had to put yourself in one of those shoes and it could could be a mix, where do you like from an environmental standpoint, where do you fall?
0: We're innovating our way out of it. We, we, we're using core principles that have been around, you know, even since Lyndon Johnson ran the country, you know, you could see certain things he was doing. We're, we're slowly changing things. Um, You know, there's different processes, but we're just automating techniques that were already done.
1: So, and what about beyond dishes, just like personally, like for, for the world as a whole.
0: (laughs) There's a mind shift that has to happen. I think that I'm lucky to live in California where uh, the West coast has been fairly mindful and leads the way often for the rest of the country. But, I really think that people need greater awareness, and to understand that it's all these s- small little things, and they have an impact across you know millions if everyone would just adopt new habits.
1: If you could switch like one habit for like the world, what would it be?
0: <laughs> i I despise the use of single use disposables, and I mean it's it's not just because of dishcraft. It is just astounding the waste and what chaos it's causing in the ocean and across the world. And so I would just ban (laughs) single use disposables if I could.
1: Yeah. Hopefully it's not that far away. Is there anything that needs to be solved for Discraft to expand its impact across the U S and potentially world?
0: We, we want to, we want to expand, but we're building the infrastructure right now. I think that for Companies like Dishcraft to be more successful, what we need is from the city's support in order to solve the collection problem. So Dishcraft can have much more, like right now, we only serve closed environments like a, you know, a hotel or a corporate cafeteria. We have one customer who's a restaurant. For us to be able to take on hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands or even dozens of restaurants, we need collection bins by the city or working with, you know, other like grocery stores and gas stations, wherever places where people could conveniently put reuse. So what the world can benefit from is you have your garbage, you have compostable, you have recyclable, and then there's a fourth thing called, you know, reuse, um, that would really tremendously help this whole movement.
1: Yeah. I love the framework, right. Reduce, reuse, then recycle. Right. And in that order. So, um, do you have a favorite climate or sustainability news source, media, podcast book?
0: Uh, such a good question. Look, I love upstream. They're an environmental group and I just think they're doing wonderful work and they have amazing research. And so I just read their reports religiously.
1: Do you have a favorite dish in your home?
0: I have a ceramic dish that I inherited from my grandmother, like a small little bowl. And, you know, I love it for sentimental reasons.
1: <laughs> it totally works. I just broke our, um, our wedding gift. We got a bowl from Orcas Island pottery, which if you're ever in Washington, uh, definitely make it to Orcas Island and definitely take out their pottery. Uh, And I felt like a total idiot, but thankfully my wife was super supportive. She was like, it's a dish, you know, Um, (laughs) it's, it's not a person. So two final questions. Um, One, are you, or this is actually, this is one question, but are you hiring? And what do you say to people who are interested in dishcraft? And then two, what's the best way for people to get in touch?
0: We are hiring. We have a variety of roles and we, it's a great place to work with a great mission and if you want to reach dishcraft, uh, info at dishcraft.com and just look up our website and there's also contact information there, dishcraft.com.
1: Awesome. And then for you personally.
0: So they should contact me through LinkedIn, you know, I have a public profile and just reach out that way. And it's fantastic.
1: Awesome. Uh, and we'll make sure I drop down the show notes, Linda, thank you so much. I had a great time. I'm hopeful you did as well.
0: Great. Thank you. It was really fun.
1: Thanks again to Linda for joining us today. You can connect with her via email info at or follow her on LinkedIn. You can also read about her work at robolinda.com, which is R O B O L I N D A dot Get in touch with me and the team via all of our social medias by following at the net Zero life. And if you prefer email, Nathan at the net Zero life works great too. As a reminder, everything I say is my own opinion and is in no way reflective of my employer. It's also not meant to be investment advice. This episode was produced by Tani Levitt, the original music composed by Mitch Bernstein from Climb On. Thanks again for listening. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.